0: Hello, everyone. My name is Oscar Guardiola-Rivera, and this is the Beyond Borders podcast. In this episode, I talk to Scottish historian William Dalrymple and Ghanaian-British scholar Dr. Kojo Coram about the uncommonwealth. We take a deep dive on the contemporary impact of empire and the future of the Commonwealth. Don't forget to follow us from wherever you are. The book is titled Uncommon Wealth, but it is it is a very uncommon uh, book. Uh, not often you have a uh, book of history, which is also a critical essay, and at the same time, uh, a book organized around a poetic metaphor. Uh, and uh, that metaphor opens uh, the book, uh, the boomerang. Choc uh, Angrauteur would say uh, the person who coined Uh, the metaphor of, uh, uh, for the idea that what you send out there, uh, what happens over there always comes back to haunt you. Uh, The author is the uh, uh, Martinican poet, Aimé Césaire. Uh, And I love the idea of a history book organized around a uh, poetic metaphor. Why did you choose this metaphor in particular? And why is it so central uh, to the book?
1: First of all... um get the levels just correct. First of all, thank you so much um, for being in conversation with me, Oscar, and William. It's a real honor to be speaking to two people who have so influenced my own writing and in such a fantastic environment. The Beyond Borders Festival is undoubtedly the most um, communal and life-affirming literary festival that I've had the chance to be a part of so thank you all for having me um and it and has the best wine and it also has the best wine although I yeah I I forgot to pick up my own glass so I'll be straight at the bar afterwards I know clearly not an old pro yet but um uh, uh, an honor to be speaking to you about um on commonwealth and Oscar's right that I use this idea of the boomerang that I you know, shamelessly um, pilfered from Aimé and Suzanne Césaire, um, his wife, um, who conceived of the idea of the colonial boomerang in order to explain how the violence that happens in the peripheries of the empire never stays in those peripheries, but eventually comes ricocheting back into the mainland. Um, With the Cesaires, they spoke about it in the context of kind of mid-20th century European politics and looked at the way that so much of the violence of what became European fascism was emerging from, say, the violence of the um, German empire against the Herrera people in Namibia, um, the violence of the Italian empire against the um, people of Abyssinia, that uh, um, these put into place the building blocks for the systems of ghettoization, um, isolation, um, surveillance, and extermination that were then visited back in the European continent itself. And I wanted to, in writing on Commonwealth, think about the legacy of the British Empire in this more substantial way. Um, the book was written in the in the context of a, of a kind of era of growing interest in British colonial legacy that happened over, say, the last five or six years. Um, all of a sudden, the questions around post-colonialism escaped. You know the um, the the, the cul-de-sac of the ivory tower, (laughs) endless debates between academics that no one paid attention to. Suddenly, they were on the front page of newspapers. Suddenly, they were on good morning panel shows as people debated how does the legacy of British imperialism continue to carry in the 21st century. But what I felt when looking at a lot of those debates was that they were focusing on the cultural and symbolic legacy of the British Empire in a way that made it seem that it was quite removed from the material difficulties that people were wrestling with in their everyday lives. Um, You know, all of the debates around British imperialism were about statues, were about the names of streets, um, were about, um, you know, what songs would be sung at cultural events. Um, You know, there was a week in which the kind of, Apex of decolonial debate in the British media was, you know, should we or should we not watch *Faulty Towers*? Like this is this was a whole we had a whole week on this, and I was like, I don't think that this was the the dream of decolonialism that you know, and Krummer and <laughs> NASA, you know, they weren't thinking about *Faulty Towers*. Ta- *Faulty Towers* is a great show. Um, it had a lot more to do with the um, the driving force behind. British, not just British imperialism, any imperialism, from the Songhai Empire to the Mongol Empire, which is material, which is about the extraction and transfer of resources across the globe. And I thought that in talking about this legacy of British imperialism just in the cultural sphere, we were ignoring the way in which what was actually boomerang back on us in the 21st century was the economic, legal, and political structures of British imperialism. Um, We need to think about the way in which certain laws from the era of imperialism continue to fuel wealth inequality in 2023. We need to look at the kind of structure and systems of corporatization, um, which the the British Empire really mastered vis-a-vis its European rivals. And when we think about that conveyor belt of private corporations that go from the Hudson Bay Company to the Royal Africa Company to the Royal Niger Company and, of course, to the East India Company, how does that put into place the system of contemporary multinational capitalism that we were all talking about in 2023? And so that's what I wanted to talk about with this idea of the boomerang and show how that brought, brought this legacy of of British imperialism back into our everyday lives in a very real and substantial way.
0: I'd love, Willie to come in precisely on that point because there is a, there is a beautiful resonance between your book and the anarchy. We we have not done enough research on the heavy lifting uh, that uh, corporations did, the very idea of the corporation and uh, the embodiment of it in, in the in the different corporations, the heavy lifting of, of the British Empire, and that's something that makes British imperialism quite unique, and it is perhaps its biggest uh, legacy to, to to the world. We live uh, not on the shadow of, but in the middle of that legacy. So we'll, I would like. Uh, uh, William, to come in
2: on on that particular point. I managed to get, I think, three books about the East India Company under my belt before I realized quite how normal a vehicle this was for the time. Hmm. The fact that I thought when I was writing uh, my early books on the East India Company that it was a kind of unique monstrosity, that this was an empire run for profit for shareholders' benefit back home, uh, I mean the, the, the nearest thing in modern in modern fiction or film is uh, what was the what's the movie with um, uh, where the, the, the mining is, is going to that planet all the, the creatures with long tail Avatar, yes, uh, where the yeah. mining corporation is is about to colonise. Uh, uh, but it turns out that in fact the Elizabethan state, uh, it was the norm to. Send out colonial enterprises as self sufficient corporate entities. Mm. So, the first of all, you have the Muscovy Company in 1580 which is trading with the kind of bonkers uh, Muscovy state of of Ivan the Terrible, which is this kind of spectacularly anarchic pre-Putin sort of... uh, And Putin apparently looks to Ivan the Terrible. Uh, 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 Sergei Lavrov told some friendly oligarch uh, a couple of months ago uh, that Putin has only three advisors, Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, and Catherine the Great. But that, these guys access it all. <laughs> but the uh, the Brits were, were were first attempt to build a corporation where you have shares issued, anyone can buy in, uh, and it's uh, it, it is the first attempt at, at at building a corporation. This thing that we think is quintessentially modern, but is already there, uh, taking over tracts of land in 1580s. And there are Russian equivalents quite quickly after that. The Stroganov family. Uh, have a Russian equivalent, which is which is uh, busy colonising Siberia with its own private army, mm. uh, and so on. Um, I've been holding this, clutching this thing, realising that in fact it's not doing anything at all. So, <laughs> I thought you had a phallic fetish. Or anyway, <laughs> let's not go there. I'm not even going to get. So there. private property corporations. So after that, you get um, the. East India Company, 1599, uh, which is given everywhere east of the Cape to uh, to colonize, trade with, and already in the initial charter, dreamt up in this very small Elizabethan state, which is not at all powerful. We're not talking the great Victorian Empire. This is uh, Elizabethan England when it still, you know, it hasn't even uh, burst its borders to take over Scotland and, and, and Ireland. Uh, there you have. Already in that charter, the idea that it has the right to wage war, you are producing a charter which authorizes private individuals under the, uh, uh, under the seal of the crown to go out and wage any war they like in order to increase their trade as long as it's east of the, uh, east of the Cape of Good Hope. Then you get the Royal Africa Company, which is the biggest monstrosity of all, which is uh, entire, uh, well, it has two things, it's not just slaves, it's also gold. And the Guinea, the phrase the Guinea comes from Guinea, where the gold is brought yeah. from. Um, and uh, but it quickly becomes the largest slave trading enterprise in history. Uh, and by the time that reaches its, its fullest extent, 12 million human beings have made the Middle Passage by force in chains from Africa to the Caribbean and the New World. and. These different corporations are not run primarily for the benefit of the state, though the state benefits from their activities. It's run uh, for profit, and like any modern company, it has a share price, an annual general meeting, uh, and the decisions made by the corporation uh, are for its own benefit. So to give a particularly horrific example in the case of the East India Company, in 17... um, 17... um, Seventy, a famine breaks out in Bengal, which continues for two years. Uh, and the East India Company, which is now controlling Bengal, does not set up a single soup kitchen. Does not set up a single. Uh, 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 it does makes absolutely no effort to alleviate the the, the 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 mass starvation. And by the end of two years, maybe five million uh, have died in the streets. And a charnel has. Can't, Calcutta has turned into this place of stinking bodies, of of, of dogs eating human flesh in the streets, picking bones clean. A complete horror story. Flies multiplying in vast numbers. Uh, And uh, in the middle of this, the East India Company sends its army out into the villages to continue to gather taxes from the starving people. And they are so successful at gathering taxes that despite the fact that the the people of Bengal have now given way to cannibalism, have sold their children into slavery, are selling their seed and their ploughs, so the following year there's no hope of ploughing anything, and whole areas of the country are are going to waste. When the news reaches London that the full taxation has been gathered at the annual general meeting of the East India Company in London, they put up the dividend for shareholders from 10 to 12.5%. And that single story illustrates as well as anything, I think, the, the, uh, uh, the corporate nature of early colonialism. And the Royal African Company is also interesting from a second point of view, is that we in Scotland like to imagine ourselves as somehow free of this, that the children of Braveheart uh, are, are immune to the sins of the English Empire. Bullshit. Uh, we are absolutely up to our neck in it. And one of the reasons that the Act of Union is signed is so that our troughs can get in that, our snouts can get in that trough. Uh, and um, the the Scots are disproportionately represented in the East India Company. And not only that, I shouldn't say that too loud in Traquare, but the, the owners and controllers of the Royal Africa Company are the Stuarts themselves. And the Stuarts are up to their neck in the business of the founding of the East India Company, and they keep the majority shareholding for themselves. So while we uh, have every right to... Uh, to beat our our brows about all sorts of things and and Culloden and the rest of it. Um, The Duke of York, who is the principal shareholder and controller of the Royal Africa Company, is branding slaves in the Caribbean with D-O-Y on their chest. Mm. Now, this is is very important,
0: Willie, because uh, what that provides us is with a little snapshot of the very origins of our global economic system. And in particular, the intertwinement between uh, ferocious force, utter violence of the kind you just described, and uh, the dividends of shareholders. And we do not put these two together very often. In fact, we would like to think that they have nothing to do with. And in fact, this is the reason why, of course, slavery has existed, as someone said in one uh, of the panels yesterday, for a very long time in most, most but not all, parts uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the earth. But what makes uh, modern slavery unique is precisely that connection between uh, uh, that kind of violence on the one hand and the dividends of uh, uh, corporations on the other. Koyo, and, and you, make, you make you make. Let me let me yeah. just uh, just a second. Koyo, you make you make that connection very early in the book, mm-hmm. and uh, you use it also to show us uh, uh, the uh, let's say the so-called third world side of that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let us before before uh, Willie comes in. Why don't you tell us about uh, uh, you know the way you saw that connection and why it illuminates so well the world in which we live in?
1: Thank you, Oscar. Crystal, can everybody hear me okay without needing to pick up the? Um The phallic phallic symbol, exactly. (laughs)
2: Oh, (laughs) (laughs) microphone, I've done nothing wrong. But
1: um, I think that the point that you made about the corporatization of the project of empire, it's so crucial to understanding not just the essential role it plays in the construction of the architecture of our current global economic system, but also in helping us understand the amnesia that empire is cloaked in within the kind of popular memory in places like the United Kingdom it's because so much of the dirty work of imperialism was done by not just the East India Company but the royal niger the anglo um, anglo iranian oil company the um uh, you know Hudson Bay Company the Levant company the Muscovy Company, all these companies that you mentioned because so much of it was essentially outsourced to privatized companies to use modern language, it becomes no longer part of our national story you know the the um island story, as you know, we were told by Michael Gove so recently, remains that chronology of William the Conqueror, the Tudors, Gunpowder Plot, World War II. Everything that remains within this island is part of the story. And what's going on in India? Well, that's, the, that's what's the concern of the bank accounts of the East India Company. What's going on in Nigeria? That's the private dealings of the Royal Niger Company. These are not part of our collective narrative. And I think that that is such a myopia in understanding how modern Britain comes into being. So often when we talk about imperial legacies, it's often with this kind of moralistic um, imposition for people to learn more about what happened over there, learn more about what happened in Ghana, learn more what happened in Kenya. And whilst that is important, what I try and emphasize on the Commonwealth is you need to understand the history of empire to understand what happened right here in Britain. Um, You know, I have a line in the book where I mention that we often say that Britain had an empire, and I've probably said that already in this talk, it just rolls off the tongue. But it's more accurate, historically, like William just mentioned, to say that the empire had Britain, in that the very unification of the contemporary state of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is very much anchored upon the potential riches that are on offer by the um, imperial project, as William mentioned, the Act of the Union is inspired by the the, um, the 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 attraction of the imperial wealth that is on offer with English imperialism. You know, prior to the Act of the Union, England already um, has. Colonial relationships with Barbados going back to the 1620s, with Jamaica going back to the 1670s. Um, you know, if you wanted to be provocative, you could say there's a longer constitutional relationship between England and Jamaica than there is between England and Scotland. And so, what's at the heart of the of of the actual state of Britain, that history of what goes on in the Caribbean which I think plays such a crucial role, not just in centuries past, but also in understanding what happened in the 20th and the 21st century. Thinking about that history of third worldism, like Oscar mentioned, thinking about Michael Manley and the project of the new international economic order, this attempt to try and challenge neoliberalism, thinking about the history of offshore um, wealth. Um, You know, if we want to think about Structural financial legacies of the British imperialism that still impact the world in 2023. We want to think about how, you know, at least according to the Tax Justice Network, the top three corporate tax havens in the world today just happen to be British overseas territories in the Caribbean the Cayman Islands, the British Virgin Islands, Bermuda, um, you know, Kits. St. Kitts, you, know, um, you know, the Cayman Islands was ran as part of Jamaica during the era of imperialism. It wasn't even its own colony. And it's with the breakup of Jamaica, um, the break off of Jamaica into being at the forefront of this kind of third worldist decolonial struggle under Michael Manley that the Cayman Islands then repositions itself as this center for for offshore wealth and a vehicle through which so much asset um, monopolizing is massed in the contemporary moment. And so we can't understand not just the history of Britain without understanding empire, I don't think we can understand the current structure of the global economy without understanding the history of the British Empire specifically.
0: I want, I want you to go into that and I want you to tell us the story uh, of uh, uh, Manley and Bob Marley, because it's, it's, it's an amazing it's an amazing story. But you had something to say uh, uh, with him before that.
2: Go to, to about Manley and Bob Marley. Okay, know.
0: good, good, good. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Um,
1: well, what I try and do in Uncommonwealth um, is not just talk about these kind of um, overarching political, economic, and legal concepts, but also ground them in some of the very amazing stories of the decolonial moment and some of the incredible characters that emerged on the global stage during that era. You know, when we think about the history of decolonialism, which has become very, very metaphorical in the in the last few years, you know. Everything's being decolonized, you know. Our galleries are being decolonized, collections are being decolonized, curriculums are being decolonized. You know, decolonization. You know, I, alongside Oscar, teach in a law school for my sins, and um, you know, this is a specific legal category. It is a marker of the transition of countries from being colonial, being under colonial subjugation, to being sovereign um, nation states, and this happens in the. Kind of mid to late 20th century in a remarkable way, where you know a third of the world's population transitioned from that category of colonial subjugation into being sovereign nation states. It's arguably as significant a change that happens in the 20th century as anything else, including the world wars and the emergence of communism. And yet we know so little about it. And so one of the stories that I tell in the book is the story of what happened to one of the most um, you know, politically and economically significant colonies that Britain had, Jamaica, in the aftermath of that decolonial
2: moment. Um, well, maybe saying just quite how rich Jamaica and Haiti mm-hmm. are. Yeah. The, at the time of the American Revolution, uh, these two islands, Haiti and Jamaica, uh, outproduce out and have a GDP greater than the American colonies by a factor of 10 at uh, ten times. And so the British are really quite quite capable of shrugging as they lose New York and Philadelphia and uh, and all this stuff because they've still got the real, uh, well, until Haiti goes its own way, well, so they've got the real drivers yeah. of the economy. And in fact, yeah. the United
0: States will not become as rich as they are until they conquer the West, Yeah, uh, until the end of the Indian Wars, which is the end of the 19th century. century. It's the, you yeah. know, that. That's how recent it First is. First time it no, begins no, to rain. Really, yeah. Absolutely,
1: um, but once Jamaica becomes independent, um, you know, we then get the eventual election um, in 1972 of a figure who, for all intents and purposes, would be exactly the type of establishment figure who would be trusted to run a former British colony. Uh, a gentleman called Michael Manley. Um, He was the scion of a famous political dynasty. His father, Norman Manley, was one of the you know, major politicians who pushed for independence initially. Um, he's a former RAF pilot during the Second World War. Um, you know, He's been educated at the finest colonial schools in um, Britain, as well as um, at the London School of Economics. Um, but upon his election as prime minister, he takes it upon himself to not only attempt perhaps the most radical program of social democracy that's been embarked upon in a former British colony, but he also sees the changing dynamics of the global community that decolonialism has facilitated, in that he looks at the floor of the General Assembly in the United Nations and realizes that there's now more nations that were former colonies than there were nations who were former colonial powers, and that the actual weight of um, legislative uh, uh, influence Lay with the former colonial world, and so he takes upon himself to kind of um, become the leader of what was then referred to in rather positive terms as the global third worldist movement. You know, by the time I was growing up, third world was always a slur, was always an insult, was always seen as a derogatory term. But if you go back to the 1970s, this is something that people were claiming positively as a imagination of an alternative way in which the global economy could be structured. You know, and it wasn't just people in um, Africa, the Caribbean, Latin America who were embracing the third Worldist term, you know, things like the Black Panther Party in the United States of America very much understood themselves as third world Jean-Paul Sartre and the new left would often refer to themselves as third worldist. And Manly's third worldist campaign really reached this apotheosis with a Resolution that was passed in the United Nations in um, 1974 called the New International Economic Order. And when we look at that resolution, it still looks radical to this day. Um, it includes things like guaranteed right to food. It includes things like um, permanent sovereignty over national resources for every country. It includes the rights for every country to be able to intervene in the actions of transnational corporations that operate within their jurisdiction. And so this is very much part of the story of how the late 20th century takes on its own particular orientation. Because whilst it was passed to the United Nations, the new international economic order was never actually implemented. And part of the real opponents of it who drove its defeat was the election of Margaret Thatcher in, in London in 1979. And then at the only North-South conference that takes place in Cancun um, the following year, um, Thatcher alongside Reagan is really one of the drivers towards ensuring that none of the provisions from the new international economic order actually get implemented. And so what I try and do in the book, alongside other stories, stories of Mozadek in Iran, stories of Nkrumah in Ghana, um, is look at these characters from the decolonial moment and try and think about how would our global economy look in the 21st century if some of their ideas had actually been able to be action. And, and
0: without that story, we could not understand uh, uh, our current uh, history. We Absolutely. could not understand neoliberalism. We could not understand why uh, other countries are not as ready to uh, align themselves uh, uh, in uh, terms of the, div- the Ukraine uh, divide as, uh, you know, we would like to in the West, whether you had something to say.
2: I'm just thinking that if you're looking at the long durée of history, the, for most of human history, the area between um, Sindh and Northern China is creating about 80 to 90% of world GDP. So the modern, the modern states of, of, uh, of India, China, plus Southeast Asia produces about 90% of the world's GDP for most of human history. And There's this brief moment that begins with Vasco da Gama breaking through with his gunboats and beginning to extract wealth uh, and seizing the spices by force in the 15th century. And you have this brief moment of, of 400 years when, by the power of the gunboats, the wealth is transferred here, which is why when you go round Scotland today, it's, you go somewhere like, I was last week in Elgin, this fat, tiny town with all these fantastic 18th and 19th century buildings with pediments and uh, an enormous obelisk and, uh, uh, and uh, 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 worthy institutions like libraries and, and museums, built on a huge scale because the money is pouring in. And then it goes. In 1950, the empire implodes. And suddenly all these great monuments are left without the economy which built it. And what we're seeing today in our own time is the return of the old economic order. The, 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 the seesaw has gone back so that now India, China is the world's second economy. Uh, India uh, is the world just overtaken Britain as the world's fifth economy. India will overtake Japan and Germany within 10 years. So that in the, in the life of, uh, lifetime of almost everybody in this room, uh, India and China will again be number two and number three. And the only question is which of those two is going to be number one in a further 50 years. And so we're seeing a very rapidly changing world uh, moving at a speed that most of us haven't even begun to grasp. And the sense in which we have become the periphery is also something which most British politicians simply haven't begun to grasp.
0: Not in the least, and, and in fact, we couldn't, uh, uh, you know, we could not overstate the importance of that observation. Because what it means is that what, uh, from the point of view of the West, looks like a deviation, you know, the, uh, the, the coming of People were surprised by the Indian moon landing this week. Is in fact seen as no, it is the norm for, of, of, of human history. And that that hits us. It hits us like a boomerang. It hurts, uh, and and we're we're there. We're there was there.
2: a there was a very racist cartoon published in the New York Times this week, which yes. had a picture of a, of a sort of coffee shop, uh, labeled the the International Space Club, with a, with a, a sort of you know American figure smoking a cigar and so on, and it had knocking on the door an Indian peasant with a cow, in a dhoti. This was published this week. Yes. Uh, Say, knock, knock. That was the only words on the thing. And, and that attitude that there's some surprise that India should now be- Landing on the moon. In a way that Russia has failed to do. Mm. This is another 1905 moment, like the kind of the moment that, that the Russian fleet is sunk by the Japanese.
0: You mentioned racism and that's a wonderful way to, to uh, uh, jump to this other character uh, before we go, we go to, to questions. The other crucial character in your book, Kojo, is Enoch Powell, but not because of the rivers of law, because of something very, very different. Absolutely. What is it?
1: I think in terms of part of the driving motivation of the book is looking at the relationship between the end of empire and the emergence of what is often referred to as neoliberalism. And I think that 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 crux, that dynamic, is really central to understanding Powell as a figure, and particularly also in understanding um, the connection that he had to India himself, which he said he wanted to be viceroy, he, he wanted to be viceroy and he also understood that um, that global geography that you just mentioned, William. You know, he has a phrase where he says the centre of the British Empire doesn't run through London but through Delhi. And he, you know, is, is, is noted by his biographer as, of having walked through the streets of London weeping upon the day of, um, of Indian
2: independence. And- Curzon himself <laughs> said that in, in 1895, if Britain loses India, we remain a power the size of Belgium. Mm, is it? Absolutely. And I think that that shift in terms of,
1: well, what is Britain post empire? is important to understanding Powell not only as the figure in the way that he's remembered in the current collective consciousness, which particularly revolves around the Rivers of Blood in terms of its kind of nativism and xenophobia, but it's what's forgotten in that is just a few months after the Rivers of Blood speech that's given in Birmingham, Powell is giving another speech, and this speech is to the Mont Pelerin Society, you know Friedrich Hayek's um, kind of think tank of neoliberal um, doyens, who you know meet in the Swiss mountains every year to um, reorganize the global economy, and Powell is giving a speech there on the removal of the fixed exchange rate and the removal of of capital controls. And I think that that is the other side of power that we don't think about, his relationship with the Institute of Economic Affairs, his relationship with the Mont Pelerin society, his relationship with the um, stew from which contemporary free marketism would eventually emerge. And I think that you don't understand power without understanding both of those sides and you don't understand modern neoliberalism without understanding the way in which it was um, indebted to that question of what can we do with the architecture, the financial and legal architecture of British imperialism without the actual substance of the territorial empire. You know, what is the city of London in the aftermath of empire? You know, what are the overseas territories in the aftermath of empire? What is the English common law system in the aftermath of empire? And I think Powell was someone who had a deep understanding
0: of those. But also Brexit. There is a point in the book in, in which uh, you you make a, a footnote to a remarkable document, uh, 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 you know, put together in the aftermath of, uh, or in the in the it, while the process of Brexit is is a foot uh, authored by four remarkable people. Tell us about that one bef- before before we go to the uh, uh, to to the public.
1: Oh yeah. So um, so this, I mean, this is a a, a book that's written um, prior to. Um Brexit, um, but that kind of marks out the vision for Brexit, which is a book that was published in twenty twelve by a group of unknown backbench conservative new MPs um, called Britannia Unchained, um, the authors of which were you know Pretty Patel, um Quessy Dominic Raab and Lish Trust, as well as Never a more yeah. intelligent
0: quartet. <laughs>
1: As well as you know, Chris Gidmore, who's been very much the Ringo of that collection, kind of um, left behind. But I was writing the book, you know, at the time in which, um, at one point, the four authors had, um, you know, occupied all of the great states. The great offices of the British state at one point from Home Secretary to foreign secretary to Chancellor to um, uh, you know eventually prime Minister for a very short period of time the um, of the cabbage. <laughs> <laughs> exactly so you know you can imagine my panic of let me get the book out yeah, yeah, before it, the cabbage dies. before the cabbage died but the cabbage did not um, <laughs> did, 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 didn't give me enough time to be able to make that work but I think what you what you see when you read um, Britannia unchained and you read this kind of romanticism around British imperialism, you know, this talk of how with Britain removing itself from Europe, that the, you know, the Commonwealth would open its doors to these free trade policies that, um, you know, the, the, there's another document that was released by Whitehall, which was actually codenamed Empire 2.0 for the mm-hmm. true free trade plan after Brexit. And I think if I, if I could be... Um, so we just take up a little bit more time. I think that this is part of the real importance of understanding the history of British imperialism in 2023, not just so we can understand what's going on over in the rest of the world, but so that we can actually be significant figures in the world economy. Because what people realized in the aftermath of Brexit was that places like India and places like China aren't as receptive towards um, asymmetrical trade relations in 2023 as they might have been in the 19th century. Um, there's a fantastic um, anecdote, which I also include in the book from Tony Blair, um, which he writes in his autobiography um, around the handover of Hong Kong, where he mentions how he gets into a conversations with the Chinese premier, and the Chinese premier refers to the, the handover of Hong Kong as a moment to put this violent history between Britain and china behind him and blair writes in his autobiography i had no idea what history was talking about and of course they didn't
2: know about afghanistan exactly. which, a bit yeah, which explains to of a lot he's um, you know talk, talking about the opium wars i mean i
1: like just the thought imagine if we had you know a french president you know being interviewed about waterloo and was like i've never heard of it you know the british press would tear him to shreds and for me i think that you know um the the way in which Britain can navigate the 21st century, where so many of these former colonies are now significant economic or political players. India, you know, Nigeria, China. This um, amnesia around empire is
2: only going to limit our ability amnesia, to the world. William, straightforward ignorance. is not taught. In, uh, it's not compulsory in mm. any history curriculum. Spirited teachers can do this. There are papers available, but. We just don't know it because we're not taught it at school. And, and we're given instead, but what we do get is sort of you know this idea that British values means liberating people. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, we, we have this idea where we, we, we liberate the slaves. We win the Second World War. We defeat the Nazis. So British school children come out believing that they've always been on the side of the angels, unaware that somewhere in the world there is a festival celebrating freedom from British rule Every six days, somewhere in the world, someone is putting up a flag of independence. Uh, And it's the the single most popular festival in the world. There's nothing which unites more people than freedom from British rule. And I was in Delhi when all this stuff was going on with Brexit and and there was this great trumpeting that all these opportunities are opening up. We're gonna, uh, India, as if so, India was like a sort of old motorbike that we'd left in the garage. Uh, and we could sort of dust out, take, throw off the dust sheet, rev up the Enfield bullet and, and off we ride in again into the, into the sunset. And of course, Indians, abs- there's no conception in Britain about how, how much Indians dislike the British for very good reasons. I mean, very polite when you go there as a tourist, but the, it, as a nation in terms of history, there is deep resentment and absolute uh, uh, anger at the looting and the pillaging of their country. And that is gaining momentum rather than diminishing. And the idea that they're going to give us preferential treatment is completely nuts. We're de- we were, the, I think, the the 32nd country that Modi visited uh, uh, in his global tour. Um, and that's deliberate. I mean, part of it is inevitable. I think, you know, the, the French, for example, are very popular with Modi, but, the, but And they're getting defence deals in a way that, for example, the French would never get a deal in Algeria uh, or uh, or Morocco uh, because there is a post-colonial thing that is inevitable. But the British just do not understand this. And I've seen in the years I've been in Delhi, successive British high commissioners coming out with first class degrees from Oxbridge, often studied history, assuming that, you know, that we were all best of friends, and that we gave Medwina Mountbatten, that we're all equal now, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, it was, and it was all, we were all friends. And w- what was the problem? That's not how it's seen in India. And, and, and we're way down the And of
0: course, there's Afghanistan. But let, let us <laughs> not go into that. Ten minutes for questions. Who would like to ask the first one? Over there, you're very close to the to the to the mic. The lady, yes. You're gonna go first. Go. How well has Britain helped its former colonies recover compared to other former colonial powers? Uh, where does it
1: sit on the kind of spectrum of decolonialization?
0: Who wants to go for that? <laughs> Off you go. <laughs> Off you go. go
1: on. I mean, I think that that is. I think there's there's a question around which former colonies how there's been such a variety in the treatment with former colonies you know the history post colonial history of Singapore is very different to say the post colonial history of Kenya and also the way in which places went through decolonization I think also affects that because we have this narrative around the kind of bloodless end of empire, as though all of Britain's decolonial um, moments were simply a kind of gentleman shaking of hands, and then, well, you know, it's all been fun, and um, here's the keys of, um, you know, state infrastructure back. And, of course, that isn't the story if we look at Malaysia. That isn't the story if we look at Kenya. That isn't the story if we look at Cyprus. That isn't the story if we look at Zimbabwe. And so there's an obvious um, difference in how much... um, post-colonial countries have been treated in the aftermath. Um, and in terms of, you know, how does that compare to, you know, the the kind of economic grip that France maintains over its West African colonies in terms of, you know, even with the currency continuing to have a stranglehold over um, French West African colonies. That is, you know, that's something that British West African colonies don't have to suffer with. Um, so I think, you know, that's you could put that in the positive category if we wanted to make a little check balance of it, but I still think the protection that former um, colonial corporations received in that decolonial moment, we look at say the Ashanti Goldfields Corporation in Ghana, we look at you know, the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company in Iran, which obviously is the precursor for BP, if we want to think about the connection to the contemporary moment, if we want to think about how these corporations had their interests placed above the interests of the sovereign governments of the newly independent former colonies. We can see that the ability for these countries to actually have economic as well as political freedom was not always helped by Britain in the 1950s, 1960s and
0: 1970s decolonial era. Let, let me take a, a couple of questions together. Uh, there's the lady over there and another one, the gentleman over here.
1: Why do you think the reason that um, places like in uh, um, refuse, well, like, to like hold up to uh, artifacts that have been taken from like country, other countries?
0: Right. Thank you very much. Things that uh, we keep from other countries. Oscar, you teased
1: me with uh, the suggestion you might talk about Bob Marley and Michael Manley. I've heard nothing about Bob. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, that, that's his, that's his. Let us take those two. Okay.
1: Brilliant, well I'll, I'll speak a little bit to the, the Bob Marley and Michael Manley issues. <laughs> <laughs> um And so I think that that's just really setting into context the that that that, that the political basis behind the the music of reggae that became so popular in the world in the late 70s and early 80s you know when i talked about this history of global third worldism the reason why bob marley you know is really the only significant artist from what we now call the global south to have really Reach the kind of record sales levels to rival a Beatles or a Rolling Stones or an Elvis Presley is because he was seen as this kind of prophetic voice of this global third worldist movement. You know, he was part, um, you know, or at least seen very much in Jamaica and um, these PNP um, campaign towards a third worldist moment. They were seen as so entwined that of course, people who you know will be familiar with Jamaican history will know that when there was a, um, a concert that was put in, that organised essentially to kind of rally support for um, Manley in in anticipation of the upcoming election, um, Bob Marley's um, association with Michael Manley led to him, his wife, and his bandmates being shot. shot. Um, you know Rita Marley being shot in the head, and. Incredibly, all of them surviving and performing at that concert um, in one so of the most they, remarkable they, performances they had
0: ever. Just, they had just finished uh, uh, rehearsing I Shot the Sheriff when, when these guys <laughs> came and shot them. Absolutely. And, and Marley, Marley plays the concert with the bullet inside him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when people appear at the concert,
1: they do not know whether he's alive or dead. Um, you know, it's, Pre-social media, no Twitter to, to get the update, and so when he arrives on stage, it is seen as this almost, um, you know, Lazar Lazarus-like resurrection, and you know this kind of transcendent messianic moment. And so when we think about how significant that third worldist um, potential was, and um, when we think about you know, what the new international economic order could have done for restructuring the global economy. I think someone like Bob Marley is a kind of cultural vehicle um, for expressing that, that hope and that, that optimism. And so that's why often those
2: two figures are written in conversation with each other. William, would you like to say something about uh, the Arte- Artifacts in, in British museums. So the word loot is a, is a Urdu word. Yes. Lutna means to plunder and it enters the English language in the 1780s to describe the sort of artifacts which are filling British private houses and British museums at that period as uh, as, as area after area in India and the, and the wider empire are conquered. Their goodies are filtering back in, in chests and, uh, and ships and, uh, and packages uh, to fill houses and museums around the country. Now, how do we deal with that today? It, legally, the answer at the moment, I think, is that the, there is already the Geneva Conventions, which uh, mean that if uh, uh, anything that Putin, for example, plunders from Ukraine, according to international law, has to be given back at the end of yeah. the war. But that is not retrospective. That only dates from the, 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 the date of the Geneva Convention, what, 1921 or something like that, hmm. 1918? So so, so, uh, mm. th- th- that, so, at the moment, uh, the Koh-i-Noor, the uh, mm. Rajat Singh's throne in the v this sort of stuff, is not covered by that. There is no legal uh, requirement for Britain to send these items back. But morally, it's a much more clouded issue. If I were to have a show of hands here saying, um, who thinks that Jewish loot stolen by the Nazis by force, of, uh, by force of arms, should be given back to its owners. Every single person, I imagine, I hope, would put up their hands. But if you then said the same about Ranjit Singh's throne, taken by British bayonets 100 years earlier, uh, uh, there would be a more mixed response. And I think that... I, think that, I mean, it seems to me that the, the, the definition we've got to work towards is something that has come by force of arms probably does have to be given back. If it's a if it's a matter of conquest and it's seizure and it's loot, the same rules should apply to stuff taken in 1780 as it did. On the other hand, of course, you've got the whole of human history. Do we require? Norway and Sweden to give back, you know, lovely um, things taken from the monastery of Iona uh, by the Vikings in the 8th century. Uh, What do we do with the the horses on top of St. Mark's Cathedral in Venice, taken from, uh, first of all, from Istanbul, but themselves seized probably from Rome earlier, or indeed the obelisks, which are now in Istanbul, which were in Rome, which previously were in Egypt. So, you know, the, history is a complicated story and there is a lot of stuff that needs to be worked through. But I think we've still got to start stealing ourselves that certainly uh, stuff that's important... That, first of all, human remains, which, mm. uh, shockingly, until recently, were on show in many museums, including the, uh, the museums of Oxford, until very recently. They obviously need to be taken down. Things that are of prime religious significance to a people, like, uh, uh, like uh, items of the Benin bronzes and so on, Uh, That obviously needs to be prioritised. Then you have to work down a list, Elgin marbles, where, you know, all this stuff. There's a lot of... And I think this theft at the British Museum this week is going to accelerate this very much because one of the big defences of the British Museum is, you know, you don't want to give it back to Afghanistan because the Taliban will blow it up. Do you really want to give it back to Iraq? Look what the... Uh, look what the, uh, uh, the the ISIS did to the, uh, the Assyrian stuff for all the Palmyra. But if you've got our museum so porous that 2,000 items can leave storage and go onto eBay without anyone spotting it, <laughs> that defense is weakened enormously. So I think this has undermined the British Museum's position.
0: On that, on that, on <laughs> that note uh, of history being complicated, let us... Let us, uh, uh, let us celebrate the fact that we have brilliant writers such as William and Kojo who and can Oscar. explain it to us. So please join in the celebration of Kojo Forum and William Dundon.